Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gaiti. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You will also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. You will hear the second part of my conversation with Woody Zool, who's a author, well-known speaker, and a great human being. Shares about uh, how he balances his consulting career as well as being in the speaker network, doing workshops, and making it viable for all. He also talks about how uh, while he's uh, he didn't get any professional training, but how he learned from the ecosystem and his uh, profound inflection points between uh, right from being in the band to being a horticulturalist and uh, now a software developer. You will also hear Goody's very deep philosophies on making the whole life better for oneself as well as for people around us. Listen on. Yeah, uh, Woody, I think uh, that's a very, very, very cool thing, right? In fact, uh, I was also going to ask you about your why you started speaking in the conferences. And uh, in the end of the day, uh, every time I cl- I get on the podium, I have butterflies. Um, how much ever uh, I have, I know the topic, I know everything, but still I have butterflies. So I yes. want to understand uh, from you, um, I know it may have been uh, to invite others similar thought process, but uh, how do you um, how did you l- know that you like this whole conference speaking and uh, model of uh, teaching people? So I I knew that I needed to speak in front of people uh, back like I'm saying in the early '90s, but I was not. It wasn't something that came naturally. You talk about having butterflies. I I, I couldn't even speak in front of five people. It was too difficult for me. So I started practicing and learning uh, very little. I had a good a mentor, a fellow who had been like me. They they were very, uh, they had a very difficult time speaking in front of people, but their job required that they did it and they learned how to do it. And they gave me their advice on how to do it. And I practiced. They, the one thing they said was start off by speaking in front of people that you know and that want you to succeed and don't have very many people. So just get used to collecting your thoughts. And I then I found 10 or 15 different little um, techniques. One thing I really liked was coding live in front of people. They, I would say, uh, we're going to do some graphics things. So the first thing we need to do is just, let's make a blue background. Now, what if we wanted to go from light blue to dark blue? How are we going to do that? And so I knew how to do those things. So it wasn't very hard for me to just code and make me feel comfortable. It's like playing music in front of people. Uh, I could play music in front of people after I got used to being in front of people, especially with a band, because it wasn't it it didn't seem as personal that I was exposed, I guess is the word. But anyways, um, I realized that in about 2005, I started speaking at these little things we called code camps and other small uh, conferences as I gained in my skills in being able to speak. But it was in 20, uh, 2011 
that we started working as a team, which we were calling mob programming at the time. And people started hearing about it and asking, can you tell, tell us about it? And I realized we actually need to learn how to talk about this. And we spent a lot of time. What is it we need to talk about? How are we going to say it? Uh, how do we make a connection? But you know what? What was really useful was at the end of each talk. So I gave my first talk in 2012 at a conference of that about mob programming. And uh, what I noticed that every time I gave the talk, there would be at least uh, five or ten questions people would ask out afterwards. I would write those questions down, and then the next time I gave a talk. I would make sure I answered those questions in the talk. So that told me, what do I need to say in my talk to answer the questions people have? Now, they'll still often ask questions, but I was covering more and more of the stuff. And uh, the problem with talking in front of people for me is I'll get lost in what I'm trying to say. So I found using slides that just you know had pictures on it that had a few words, that would help me stay on track. So if I forgot where I was at, I just go to the next slide. And then that reminds me of where I'm going. And that works for, well for me, too. Two, three things I call from what you were mentioning. One is this, you know, capitalizing your own band experience um, and uh, ensuring that you are doing it, showing it rather than talking about it. And when you have to talk, you're using the basic slides to actually help you navigate rather than actually showing the presentation itself. I also liked uh, the part where attracting the like-minded people so that A, there's no need for you to go and share your resume. People come to you for your work. I think that's a very, very great way to put it. How do you balance the uh, such conferences or conversations that you have? Um, uh, like a coding camp or uh, on all this with your regular work. Oh, Let's oh. say you ha you are having assignments. Um, uh, it could be around uh, change management or around teaching or any of those. How do you balance these two? Yeah, so I I always leave time to go to conferences if I can. If I get if I get invited and I can find a way to go, I will. Now, each conference is different, but some many of them will help cover uh, the expenses, such as if, if I need to fly somewhere uh, or whatever. But so but can I do that every day, all day, you know, uh, every day of the year? I wouldn't be able to make a living because I got to also pay the bills. So when I first started speaking at conferences, I would just arrange to do the ones, you know, maybe every two or three months I could go to one or uh, if they were really local and they weren't expensive, I could just go to them. But as far as trying to make a living and also doing this, once I got invited to conferences, uh, at that same time, people had started asking me to do workshops on, uh, we were calling mob programming. And although I had done some workshop kind of things in helping people learn better coding practices or how to do specific coding things, I'd never done a workshop for mob programming. So I needed to get some experience doing it. And fortunately, there was a really big company, you know, with something like 20,000 software developers who had called me and wanted a workshop. And I thought, okay, I told them, I, I really don't know what I would do, but um, but let's give it a try. So I, I went to them and I took a lot of notes as we did it. And I learned a lot from doing that. So the combination of going to a conference and then 
finding a few companies there where I could provide a workshop would pay enough to replace the income I could have made if I had just stayed doing my work. It took about three years of doing this that I realized there was so much, so many people wanted me to come do workshops on estimates or coaching uh, estimates, mob programming and other things. I, I am a, not a proponent of estimates. What I was doing those days, I called no estimates and I'm calling it beyond estimates now. I think estimates are harmful in software development. I don't think they actually help. I think they misguide us and misdirect us. However, uh, that's unrelated. The point being that people wanted to learn about these things. So I learned how to do the workshops. I actually found uh, a lot of people were very helpful they said, oh, here's something you can try. Like one of the very first things somebody taught me was that uh, that you need to take frequent breaks. So, you know, how, what do I know? You know, so I went ahead and let's take frequent breaks like once an hour. Another thing is when the lunch food arrives, you just stop. You don't keep going after the lunch food arrives because everybody's going to think about lunch now and things like that. Just little things I didn't know much about. But the balance here turned out for me that I could continue working in my current job and still go out and do a workshop, you know, a couple times uh, a month. But then it became overwhelming. I had so many people asking for the workshops that I decided just to switch my career and do that. So after um, three years, maybe of doing two years, three years, two years of doing both my work and some workshops, I just switched to doing the workshops. Now, since the pandemic, Everybody in the world knows about the pandemic. You don't need to talk much about that. But almost everybody had to figure out, well, how are we going to work from home? And it actually turns out that the software teaming concept works really well when we're working remotely. It's a little different, but it can work really well. So I've been very busy working remotely, guiding people, even though I started traveling again last year. And I've been uh, pretty much all over the world, not 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 like I was before the pandemic, but I have made it, you know, to Europe and to India and a few other places. I like to get out and travel. I, I like seeing new things. As a matter of fact, um, before I ever knew I could make my living doing this, I would still try to get out and travel because you always learn something new uh, when you do that. And I, I enjoy that. But also it's just fun. Yeah. Nice. Uh, did, did that address what you were asking? Yeah, you 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 were saying that you try to balance this and try to yeah. combine some kind of a, a, you know workshops or something yeah. which will be useful. And most importantly, I think what you said the last one is right. In term, uh, whenever I have spoken to people who are very active in software circuit, speaking circuit, I used to um, wonder how they manage. I think your answers hit it right on the head. Good, good. In terms of saying, first, you have to be interested in traveling and meeting new people. So the moment you have that, I think that the rest of it sort of falls into place, I guess. Yes. Now, that's not for everybody. I'm sure of that. But on the other hand, if somebody thinks they want to become a, a speaker at conferences, there's lots of opportunities. When I first started speaking at conferences uh, of the bigger conferences where you have to submit proposals and all that. Uh, I really didn't know what I was doing, but uh, I followed the kind of the guidelines I'd learned from my mentors. If you're really well prepared, then it's not going to, you know, that at least you don't need to worry about that part of things. So I practiced and practiced and practiced my materials. If I was going to show something in code, I would practice it 50 times before I presented it in front of somebody. And then uh, with these other things like the mob programming, 
I practiced saying the things I think I needed to say just so I didn't stumble over my words because it's really easy for me to get jammed up uh, trying to speak in front of people. And then I can't even go on because I get myself so confused. So I practiced a lot. But I have found that that almost everybody is rooting for you. They want you to do well. They want you to to uh, succeed in what you're doing. So most audiences are very friendly, at least in our field, and makes it relatively easy, uh, even if you're a beginner. People look at me sometimes. You know, one thing that happened in a podcast early on, somebody said, uh, Woody, you're an agile thought leader, and we want to know about blah, blah, blah. And I thought, wait a second, I'm not a thought leader at all. We happened to stumble upon something that other people found interesting. But I don't think of that as being a thought leader. We just happened to be the ones, you know, that others said, hey, what is it you're doing? And we started sharing it. And I think that's critical. I think whatever we know, uh, there's other people that want to learn what we know. And so that's part of this is we're sharing with each other. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't have learned anything about Agile and better software practices if other people hadn't been sharing those ideas in blog posts or in forums or, you know, podcasts or in the earlier days, you know, in the 90s, a lot of people were putting stuff into blogs and, and writing articles. So uh, and then books. So yeah. if other people hadn't shared, I wouldn't have learned anything. It would have been hard. In fact, in 2005, a book came out uh, by Michael Feathers called Working Effectively with Legacy Code. And up to that point, I had been gathering or collecting techniques for working with legacy code. Like, how can I make my day easier? And then his book came out and it like doubled everything I already knew. It was that much again to help me better understand how to do my work. And if he hadn't have done that, I still wouldn't, there's a lot I still wouldn't know. So if we know something, somebody else wants to know it, Let's share it. Let's, Let's share, share it. it. I agree. Yeah. In terms of uh, collective brain power, you mentioned. So a minute back, uh, you, you were talking about, uh, you know, uh, initially you started staying within your brain and then making it collective. I think that yes. is the essence of uh, staying, right? We are standing on very giant shoulders. shoulders. Yes. So we also have our shoulders broad enough so that others can stand yes. on us, right? <laughs> Yeah, you know, that's a funny thing. It's like we we are part of a chain of this knowledge. We are not the end of it. You know, the, when it gets to us, it's not like, okay, it's all been done. We, we don't need to do anything more. It's our time to take what we've learned, use it, and find ways to share it. And then we can move things forward, not just in our industry, but in the world in general. You know, yeah. it's, it's bigger bigger than just software. That's for sure. I'm, I want to ask a very personal question. I hope you don't mind telling this. Sure, um, sure. So all of us, right, uh, in not now, maybe uh, for, uh, 10 years, 15 years back when I, uh, when I was uh, being, I was introducing myself every time, I used to uh, talk about my alma mater, where I graduated from and uh, what kind of uh, engineering I did or what kind of, uh, you know, conversation I had. But in the last uh, 10 years, I think this whole concept of certification, you know, being certified by an agency and all of that seems to be becoming more and more, uh, you know, a cliched, um, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Oh, um, I also see in your resume or, or in your LinkedIn post, I'm sorry, in your LinkedIn post, you said uh, you didn't even mention which 
anything around your education or anything is there a reason why yeah. you did that i oh i, I never went to school so I, yeah i i i so i i took some classes in programming once i was teaching programming at a university i thought oh maybe maybe if i got a degree in this i could i would be a professor you know just so i said i took some classes and i thought no this is a little too boring for me so um yeah i learned to program simply by programming i had some software i needed to have uh i bought a computer uh and then uh i i couldn't find the software i wanted to buy and i thought maybe i need to learn to program so i started learning to program and it took me a couple weeks to get to where i could do something that was useful in those days you know all you need to be able to do is have an idea of what you needed uh you're going to have to input some stuff you're going to have the computer act on it and you're going to output some stuff i mean that's what programming is it's really a simple idea and if it's just mathematical calculations that's easy uh a lot of the early stuff i wrote was just to make my business a little bit easier but i uh, what i believe is this um a degree is a good thing to have a certification is a good thing to have but it really doesn't define what you're capable of doing so it goes in both ways if we think oh this person is an engineer they got an engineering degree so that we're going to use them as an engineer what if they're bored with being an engineer and what they'd rather be doing is sales or they'd rather be doing um product you know invention or whatever so we lock people in based on what degree they have and reverse there's a lot i found this anyways there's a lot of people who don't have a degree in the specific thing they're doing it's just they're thinking people and i think i hate to i'm not going to make any judgments of anyone but i've met very few humans that don't have a lot of value in them regardless of what their education is regardless of what their specific education might have been or not have had so this is like there's two things that block us with education and one of us we think that defines what the person's capable of and the reverse we think that if they don't have the education it defines what they're not capable of and i don't think either of those are useful but i would say for myself if i were to have gotten a degree when i was younger let's say uh, i i wanted to be a horticulturalist i wanted to work with plants and teach others uh, how to take care of plants and stuff like that when i was a kid so i I signed up, I registered at a, a California university and I was going to go to school. On the way to that, I got invited to join a band and play music with this band. And I decided to do that instead. And so, um, but I, that's what I wanted to do. I, I would say this, if I had become a horticultural teacher, I have a feeling I would have got bored with that in a couple of years and I would have gone to something else anyways. So there's no way for me to say you know, what would my life been if I had gone down a different path? I did become a scrum master in 2007 when scrum was becoming popular. I worked at a place where they required that I become a scrum master. So I went and got my certification from uh, Ken Schwaber. I figured, go to the guy who invented it. And I went and got my certification. And I felt I felt I learned some good things. But if you don't mind, I'm going to share the two things I felt I learned the most there. The first thing was he went, he put us through a long uh, exercise of estimating a complicated project. 
at the end of which we're supposed to provide, you know, what we think we'll be able to get done and how long it will take. After everybody did their presentations, he said, that's all baloney. You cannot possibly have known how long this is going to take. You don't even know who your developers are. You, there's no way you could have known this. So this is, that's not what we should be doing. The other thing he said that I thought was really useful, although I've already been thinking in terms of no estimates, but I learned that from Ken. And then um, another thing he said was, if you're still doing Scrum the way that I'm teaching you six months from now, that's not really the spirit of this thing. So the spirit is to look at what things are going on, how things are going, and improve, continuously improve your processes. Don't just borrow someone else's processes and stick with it. So those were good things to learn. But other than that, I felt getting certified was meaningless. I let that lapse now. I, I'm not sure. I'm probably going to uh, offend a lot of people by saying that, but those certifications just don't have any real value. They might be a good starting spot. But there's certainly, uh, I don't see much value in that. A lot of jobs require that you have them. So if you got to have one, I guess, like I did, go and get one. Yeah, it is a very, um, you know, atypical thought, Woody. I, I belong to the same uh, school of thought, by the way. I While I, whatever certification I've had, I don't normally publish it. It's only for my starting point or learning. Because what happens That's is the right. moment you do that, you get boxed in. And with the, yeah. in Agile, you have so many different certifications. So the moment you are in this school, you're not in that school. I'm like, yeah. no, that's not yeah. that's not the spirit. So any case, I think that's a long yeah. controversial conversation that we will never get out of. But I thank you that not doing that as, is very refreshing in terms of saying, are we able to try it? And are we learning from it and move on? As you stand today, uh, you have, uh, uh, you know, 30 years plus of uh, software development and you started, uh, uh, you know, building software for your own self. And now yes. you are uh, helping, you're doing so many new, varied things. So what are some of the inflection points in your career? In Have you reflected on that? Can you share them? Oh, yeah. So, you know, my, my overall career, when I was uh, way before software, what I'd found was I didn't like working for other people. Uh, it, it always felt like uh, we were doing things in the most difficult way. And I would start my own little business instead. So starting uh, way back when, even as young as 16 years old, I had my own little businesses. I would have a business for a while, but I'd get bored with it. And so I would sell it off, piece it off, sell the customer list, whatever I could do, and moved on, move on to something else. And I had something like 16 um, businesses over my life. What I found was that somewhere along the way, what I really enjoyed doing was making things. And I wanted to focus more on making things. So I started a sign shop back in uh, 1978 or 79, learned to paint signs you know, like letters on buildings and on trucks for businesses. And I really enjoyed that. I did a lot of woodworking, metalworking, plastic, screen printing, hand painting, lettering, you know, on boards and signs. I loved all of that. And I would build a big enough business till I had 10 or 15 employees. And then it would become boring to me. When you get to the size where you're not the main maker anymore, you're now the person running the business, it just would get boring for me. I wasn't there to make a, a lot of money or to have a big business. I liked the making of things. So when I stumbled on the software development, there were four or five things I noticed right away. Uh, I can do it anywhere, anytime, because I bought 
my first computer was a portable computer. It's like the size of a sewing machine case you could carry around, you know? And so uh, I could do it anywhere. I could just think up the thing I wanted and make it. And I didn't need to go buy, you know, some wood and get some saws and all the work that it takes to make something. So I liked the making aspect of it. So somewhere in the beginning of that, I really learned that if I could deliver something today, like work for an hour or two writing some code, deliver it to myself so it's making my day easier at the end of the day or the beginning of the next day, that would give me a little bit more time to learn to program tomorrow. So each day I would try to do something that would make the next day easier and give me more time. I kind of, I think I got this from, there was a, there was a guy who uh, wrote a book, uh, Norton, you know, he started a company later, uh, Peter Norton, I think was his name. He, he, he ended up with Norton Utilities and then Semantic and other companies. But anyways. Viral, uh, virus uh, deduction company. The virus stuff. Yeah. So that guy, he wrote a book. I, I heard him speak somewhere and this was a long time ago. He said, um, well, the way I started was there were things on the computer that I would do repeatedly. Like I have to drag this to here and then copy. That wasn't dragging those days. It was all uh, command line. I have to copy all these files in this directory to you know, my backup. And so I want to automate those things. So I took that to heart. I thought, what can I do that I can automate? So that was a big, if you want to talk about inflection points, is really that, uh, realizing I could write something today that would make tomorrow easy, easier. And I came up with this thought. If I can make tomorrow easier or something I need to do effortless or unnecessary, then let me do that today to make tomorrow better. Now, I remember somebody saying, uh, you hear this old Chinese proverb where they say, when's the best time to plant a tree? And then the response is 20 years ago. Well, that's only partly true because, for example, when I was a kid, I grew plants and trees and I liked doing that. If you plant an apricot tree 20 years ago, then it's already in the second half of its useful life now. Maybe plant it five years ago because it takes about five years for it to become productive. And then it will have 20 or 30 years of being productive. So it's not like 20 years ago is the best time to plant a tree. It depends on what you want the tree to do. So the same thing with me is I couldn't, I, I realized I need to write the software today to make tomorrow easier. And every time I can make tomorrow easier, I get more time to write more code. So that was, I automated everything for myself that I could do. And that gave me more and more time to write code. The next, the next big uh, inflection point for me was when I realized I just want to do this for a living, but I don't want to own a company to do it. And I thought I got to become attractive to people that hire programmers. But that was in 1998. Uh, I don't know where if you were writing code in 1998, but um, I just started. I just okay. started writing C++ uh, code. Okay. So the easy thing about 1998-99 was there was such a demand for software developers. You, you could not help but get a job. So that made it really easy for me to get involved. But my, my first job was great. They did things in a very much an agile manner. It was a very short contract. They needed to, a couple extra people to help on something. And when that ended, my second contract uh, was a terrible place to work. And it made me realize, even in software, there's going to be some good places. There's going to be some bad places. And that that made a big difference in my life. Right then I realized I want to work in a good place. And I, I had a lot of trouble finding good places to work. So during that period of my career, I started figuring out how can we 
influence things to make every place a good place to work? How do we make it where every place is wonderful? But that that was a long uh, period, and I'm still in that period. So from 1999, 2000 until today, I'm I've discovered this. What's an ideal place for me to work? might not be an ideal place for you to work. So everybody's different. But if I know what's ideal for me, and I sort of make that public so people know, then I will attract the people that are most uh, likely to help me get that place to work that I would want to work. So that was a, another big inflection point. The the idea of pair programming and teaming um, from 2005 till 2010, I really was working on this idea of how many people can we bring together to all work at the same time? And I didn't do a lot of it, but I think starting around 2006, I really started experimenting with three people at, at one computer, a business analyst, a tester, and a uh, and a programmer, and how effective that could be. Trying to learn to shorten the cycle of time of getting things done. So there's a lot I'm covering right there. Then what really happened was, by the end of uh, that decade, 2009, I realized I no longer want to work at a place where they're not already ready to make things better. So that's what I started looking for at that time was up till then, it, it was hard to find a place that was better and I still needed to have a job. But now I thought I can wait to get that job. And so I, I really thought I'm just going to wait till somebody agrees. We really want to make things better. So that was a big change in my career. But I was already an old guy by then, I guess. You know, I would have been, um, you know, in my 50s. So I, you know, I'm not a kid anymore. I'm, and I'm not worried about raising a family because my daughter was already uh, finishing up with college and I didn't need to support her anymore. So I had freedom that I didn't have when I was younger. And I decided just find a place that will be uplifting to work. When you come in in the morning, you're glad you're there, that you're working with people you want to be with, and you're all trying to make things better. And uh, that's what I focused on for a few years until I realized now I should go out and help other people uh, by doing the workshops and help them learn how to make their life uh, more the way they want it to be. And hopefully I'm able to do a little bit of that. I, I don't know the results, but I'm hoping it's helpful to people. Wow, what a beautiful, uh, you know, inflection points you've had in your career, uh, Woody. I, I, I'm, I'm thrilled to hear this in terms of uh, becoming productive on a day-to-day -day basis to building organizations to make themselves better and a better place for uh, people to work. I am, I'm, I'm thrilled to hear this. So I, I, I think there's one more thing I want to share. And I don't know how useful this is, but now I'm at this point in my life where um, if I go back in my life to when I was a teenager and I would look at a person like what I am now, I want to share that. When I was 16 or 17 years old, I, um, I was walking across a park and I saw some old gentlemen who are now, they were what my age is now, they were that old. Uh, some of them were even older. And uh, I thought oh, they were playing music. And I went over to hear them playing the music. And there was a very old gentleman there. He was 86 years old. So remember, I'm 16 or 17. He's 86 years old. How much older than than me was he? You know, this is a, a whole lifetime has passed. He was born before there were automobiles. He was born before there were airplanes, before there were radios, 
before there was television. He was born a long time ago. So I sat and listened to them playing music. And when they were done and starting to put their instruments away, he turned to me and said, you stayed here and listened to us play for a long time. Do you want to learn to play music? And I said, well, I am. I'm trying to learn to play guitar. And uh, but he was playing a banjo. And I said, I just got a banjo to go get your banjo and I could teach you how to play in 15 minutes. Here's an 86 year old man telling a 16 year old boy, I can teach you how to play music in 15 minutes. So I ran. I didn't go home. I had it in my truck. I ran over to my truck and got my banjo and brought it over. And he taught me how to play in 15 minutes. And I got to know him. And I'm going to tell you something that he he did to me. I think that's a good way to say it. After we were done, he said, I go to church every Sunday. Uh, this Sunday, I don't have anybody to take me. Could you come and take me to church on Sunday? And I said, uh, yeah, I'll be happy to. So he showed me where he lived and I went off, you know, and then on Sunday, I came to pick him up at the time he said, and I took him to church. And um, that didn't seem like anything big deal to me. But years later, I knew him for 10 years. He died. He was 96 years old when he died. Years later, I said, um, you know, you seem to really trust me. Uh, why Why is that? He said, well, you know, every, I ask everybody to come and take me to church on Sunday. And everybody says, yes, I'll come and take you to church on Sunday. You're the only one who ever actually came to take me to church on Sunday. And he said, that way I, I knew I could believe what you would, whatever you said was true. And I thought that's a really interesting thing. He had these little things that he would do to see how, how another person's character was. So as I reverse my life, I'm now at the end of that. A lot of the times I will look back on how did these older people influence me? I knew my great grandparents on my mother's side, her great, her grandmother and grandfather. Uh, they had come over from Europe at the end of World War II, long time back. And I watched their lives and I understood how they lived. And they would share stories with us. My great grandmother was um, quite a bit older than me when I was a teenager. So I learned a lot from her. I didn't talk a lot with my great grandfather. He was already pretty, getting pretty old. But these older people, we're giving me insights that I've used now for my entire life. Things that help me understand because they're looking at life from the other side. <laughs> I, I hope that was useful to somebody. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In fact, I was going to ask you, um, what kind of an advice will you give um, to other people who are just joining the career or many people who listen are, are the mid-career? about 10 years, 15 years into the career. I think uh, I, I like what you're saying in terms of saying, hey, uh, be, uh, you know, be like what, be trusting as well as be trustworthy, right? Anything yes. else you want to share, uh, any advice you want to share to be with our listeners? You know, I think getting to know yourself is like, that's a critical thing. So I think we go through our lives kind of doing... Um, what is expected of us. But I think it's really useful to get to know yourself really well. And uh, it, the life isn't, for me, life isn't about getting things. It, it's about um, having the life that that you're, you are uplifting to others and you're uplifting to yourself. So it's, if we can find a way to have that, I think the value for me 
It's that all way, all the ways throughout my entire career, I found people who are willing to help me get better at what I want to get better at. And if they weren't there, I don't know if I would have ever been able to get, you know, get the progress that I've made. So in reverse, let's be helpful to others. Let's find those who are willing to help and let's be helpful to others. But you know, that might match, might not, might not match what you want your life to be. So you got to figure out for yourself, what is it? What's meaningful to you? What's good for you? And boy, the world needs help right now. The world needs help right now. Who knows what the future is going to be? But it's not as bright as maybe it looked when I was a kid. So let's let's make things better. Thank you so much, Woody. I really, really appreciate your time. And I love the conversation of, you know, starting from a band to be a horticulturist and a very, very well-known speaker and um, a teacher um, to including myself. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it. We thank Siddharth for the music and Anita for promoting the software people's stories. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcasts at pm-powerconsulting.com.